Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 34 in our series for 2019. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And today's date is Friday, September the 20th. First, I talked to Marcus Schmidt, founder and CEO of CopyTrack, a leading worldwide image copyright enforcer. CopyTrack protects image copyrights for professional photographers and ensures photographers get paid for unauthorised use of their work. And then I'll be talking to Michael Every, Head of Financial Markets Research Asia-Pacific for Rabobank. We'll be talking about the latest in the trade war between the US and China. But now, let's talk to Marcus Schmidt in Berlin. Well, Marcus, how does CopyTrack actually work? Well, it's a, it's a platform for uh, photographers, uh, image agencies, e-commerce companies and, and publishers. Basically, everybody who... Um, owns uh, photos and uh, the copyright on photos and licenses uh, on photos. They can upload their images to our platform and uh, we will deliver back all the hits worldwide where this photo is used in the internet. And then, um, just like in an email system, they can look at these hits and uh, decide whether it's a legal use or an illegal use 
And um, I mean, 80% of these uh, hits are actually illegal uses. So uh, then they can just uh, click on it and submit a claim to us. Yeah, and then we take care of the of the post licensing and the enforcement of these uh, rights. So, how big an issue is the unauthorized use of the photographer's work? It's it's super big. I mean, as I said, it's eighty uh, percent of those uh, images that are used are uh, used without a proper license. So it's huge. The point is, photographers have to upload their photos to copy track. Exactly, because otherwise we cannot match and and search for them. Yeah. Right. So what technology do you use? We have uh, um, an own developed um, crawler that constantly uh, yeah, crawls uh, millions and billions of websites. And we have, let's say, a, a certain technology that allows us to do that uh, very, very quickly. So we don't have to move big data. We extract uh, certain criteria of an image and compare those. Um, so it's a quite smart and very powerful uh, engine. So this technology that you have actually searches across all the websites around the world. Exactly. We have, I mean, we have several levels. So we have uh, some crawlers uh, looking um, in a broad way um, all around the globe, but um, also we have crawlers uh, that we can direct. So, for example, if we have a client. Um, that only wants to check whether his clients, for example, um, license all the images they use correctly, then we can point it to yeah, a certain service. So how are the photographers actually paid when the settlement is reached? Um, well, there's two levels. Uh, we have a, first, we have a very friendly um, post-licensing offer and also um, a letter that clears the rights. So um, we ask the, the um, let's say, infringing or potentially infringing party uh, for a very, let's say, uh, reasonable fee. Um, in this case, the photographer gets 70% of his fee. Um, if we have to go further and take some legal steps, then... Uh, currently, they get 50% in the near future, I believe from next month on, 55% of the revenue we, we have. What proportion does CopyTrack keep of that? The, the other part. So in post-licensing, we keep 30%. And uh, if, if we do legal steps, which is much more uh, expensive and uh, risky, we currently keep 50 and in the near future, we keep 45 have you ever had to take people to court on this? Oh, yeah, 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 daily, every day. Um, yes, I mean, we maintain a network of lawyers uh, worldwide. And, yeah, uh, depending on the countries, sometimes we are very successful in a, in a pre-court settlement. Um, but in many cases, especially in Germany, um, where the legal situation is uh, very um, clear, we can go to court very easily. So what are the top countries for copyright infringement? Um, well, it's, uh, it's actually uh, changing slightly all the time, but among the top countries here, at least based on our data, it's uh, the United States, China, and actually Germany. Are, are there issues uh, with the U.S. legal system? No, I mean, everybody knows that uh, it's, uh, let's say, insanely expensive um, to work with lawyers and uh, or going to court in the U.S., so actually in the U.S., we are quite successful in settling the cases um, before going to court. But China would be an issue. Uh, China is a, a quite difficult country, yes, um, due to the legislation. I mean, for example, you can only uh, 
follow up legally if uh, you register the image. Then, however, to register the image, there are so many criterias that it's uh, it's a really uh, a pain, let's say. So it, uh, China is for sure not the super successful country we have. In what countries do op- does copy track work? Well, um, for the first step, post-licensing, we work uh, actually around the globe. So uh, we do this offer in any country in the world um, and uh, contact the image user. Um, If it comes to um, this next step, which is actually a commercial collection process, we have a very big amount uh, of countries, let's say. If it comes to legal steps, then uh, we have, let's say, a, a table in the system that checks... Uh, or let's say where we have all the legal parameters of all those countries and uh, we can judge whether it's worth um, going uh, legal steps in this country or not. Um, Because in in countries like Germany, for example, if you win the case, then the opponent has to pay your legal fees. In other countries, that's not the case. So you might win the case, but still sit with, I don't know, 500 or 1,000 euros of fees. So it's no sense going in with a case for 600 euros. And and this is what, I mean, that's actually the, the smart thing we have in the system. If they hand in cases, uh, we can immediately tell them uh, that it does not make sense doing that and we'll go a step further in the future we will not even show those cases so that we keep the work for our clients as low as possible are there famous examples of copyright theft of photos yeah i mean we, we just recently had a, a quite interesting case uh, there is a professional fo- photographer um, called rap lewin and uh, in uh, his young years he did photos of kurt cobain uh, from Nirvana in the 90s. He never heard of these uh, systems that, that we provide, and, and then he tried it, and he found that his images um, of Kurt Cobain were used. Um, and uh, he handed them in, and we won the case, of course. Um, and there's also a video interview and, and blog article on our website uh, with, with Reb Lewin. That, that would be one of the most notorious cases. Yeah, I mean, it's just a case, let's say, where you, you know uh, at least the, the picture that, that was uh, infringed. It's a quite famous picture. Uh, we have other cases with, uh, for example, a big hotel, worldwide hotel chain that uh, took an image and distributed it to all the travel agencies um, without having the rights. Uh, that was, let's say, at least fee-wise, a very uh, interesting case. Right. So, so we're not just talking about websites here, but we're talking about even outfits like hotel chains that can actually engage in copyright theft. Yeah, of course. I mean, they they distributed it, and and then those travel agencies used it on their website. So, but they they got it from the hotel, uh, and they didn't have the license. So, how does image theft harm the copyright owners? I mean, what impact does it have? Well, I mean, the the past, I would say centuries, uh, or not, not, not decades, not centuries, uh, decades, um, we had this, this switch from, uh, let's say, the traditional photography into the, the digital. It's, it's all digital today, uh, which means that if you publish a, a, an image, it's actually immediately worldwide. And uh, beforehand, photographers could control much better because they had the originals um, and stuff like that. Now, you, you can almost not distinguish uh, uh, the copies so um, and that's the the problem Uh, the second thing is that you have image agencies the big ones I don't want to name them but 
photographers give their photos to them and they have no control at all when these photos are are sold or not to who and for which license and and they see sometimes one or two euros per uh, image sold if they see it so in essence photographers uh, just lost the base of their uh, existence and uh, and that's what we help with many photographers and also image agencies by the way earn more money with tracking their license infringements than with selling them. And the way the system works now is that they mightn't get much money for their photos if they're used, if they're sold. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, they, they get much more uh, <laughs> this way. Um, what we are actually uh, aiming at, let's say that's the the vision, is that actually everybody could use images uh, in the Internet just as they want, because we will find the use anyway, and then they can uh, pay uh, for the use. Uh, but that's, that's a, let's say, a vision uh, which is a bit more far away. Right, right. Well, uh, well, it'll be fascinating to see how CopyTrack goes. And Marcus, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thank you. And now let's talk to Rabobank's Michael Every. Michael, uh, the US and China are due to have trade talks next month in October. Uh, should we be holding our breath? Not really, not unless you can hold your breath for a very, very long time. I, I don't think that on a fundamental basis anything has shifted since the last time we spoke. Uh, and in fact, I don't think anything has shifted for a very long time. We have seen some more positive surface-level headlines where China has just agreed to delay for one year 25% tariffs on 16 specific import items from the U.S. with a a total cost of around $2 billion, which is really very, very, very small beer. Uh, And from the U.S. side, just this morning, we've had news that Trump is going to delay the imposition of the increase of his 25% tariff to 30% from the 1st of October to the 15th of October, because the 1st of October is the 70th anniversary of the People's Republic of China, and obviously it's a major national holiday and a big point of pride for them. So those are certainly confidence-building measures. Uh, you, you know, you can't deny that. But we've had it made abundantly clear that from the Chinese side, they want Huawei included in these talks. And from the U.S. side, that's not on the table. That's simply not going to happen. And from the Chinese side, they refuse to have any enforcement mechanism as part of any trade deal. And from the U.S. side, there must be an enforcement mechanism. Otherwise, this is all talk and no action. So until you can manage to bridge that particular divide, yeah, don't hold your breath. Right, okay, okay. And, uh, of course, what's complicating it is what's happening in Hong Kong. Well, yes, that's one of many complications. In the U.S., there's legislation being pushed forward, even this week as we speak, to basically focus more closely on Hong Kong and to insist that the U.S. legislature will keep an eye on developments there and if they see any slipping in Hong Kong's autonomy to then act and to treat Hong Kong separately to how they're currently treating it at the moment, or differently, I should say. And you know, we've had plenty of tweets from very senior figures in Congress, if not from the White House itself, suggesting that Hong Kong is absolutely something that they're focusing on. And from the Chinese side, naturally, that complicates things too. They see this as foreign interference and in what is a domestic matter. So, again, how do you think that is conducive to a trade deal being done? And the answer is it isn't. Indeed, indeed. And, uh, of course, uh, it's difficult to see how China's going to handle Hong Kong because uh, they can't send in the military, uh, but uh, they seem to be relying on the police. Well, at the moment, if you listen to what 
some of the voices in Hong Kong are saying, and there are many people saying many different things, there are suggestions that they're already sending in mainland uh, police dressed up as Hong Kong police. That's certainly an allegation that's being made. And one has to say that in all objectivity, the level of uh, aggression in policing, uh, even to meet you know, what is an increasingly aggressive street presence by demonstrators, is certainly totally out of keeping with the, you know, the experience of the police in Hong Kong over decades. It doesn't look like the way that the police used to look like uh, and in any way, shape or form. Uh, but I have to say that this isn't my opinion, but I'm you know, quoting many different experts, that you cannot completely rule out that China will move in uh, at some point. Certainly, it looks like they won't be doing it before the 1st of October. There had been concerns in some circles that that would happen. Uh, that does not look likely at all. But after the 1st of October party is out of the way, um, if, if events continue to deteriorate, China themselves have said that there are circumstances in which they feel it would be necessary. So saying they can't, I'm afraid, may yet prove to be inaccurate, although certainly we all hope that isn't the situation. And, of course, uh, that would complicate the entire trade dispute even further. Well, were that to happen, it would no longer be a trade dispute, although, as I said to you, I think the last time we spoke, it isn't a trade dispute anyway. This is a far more fundamental power struggle between the U.S. and China, which uh, is dressed up as a trade dispute by those who don't want to recognize the fact that it's a far more fundamental power struggle between the two. It's much more convenient to think this is about the price of soybeans uh, or the price of footwear uh, or, or vinyl flooring uh, than it is actually about you know, a global arm wrestle between the world's two largest economies. So rather than admit that fact, many people continue to think it's about the price of vinyl flooring. And uh, all I can say is, really, really? And, of course, uh, I mean, there's the other complicating factor from Donald Trump's perspective is that uh, he's facing, unlike Xi Jinping, he's facing an election next year, and he does want to be re-elected. Well, he does. He's certainly not going to be re-elected with the economy in ruins. He's not going to be elected with the, you know, the stock market collapsing, although, of course, most people don't notice the stock market as much as he does himself personally. Equally, I don't think he's going to be re-elected uh, rolling over and allowing China to tickle his belly. He'll get such a blowback right the way across the political spectrum from doing that too, uh, particularly as someone who's you know, made his name as being tough on China. But that isn't an easy out for him either. But I want to just swing it around for a moment. Everyone presumes just because there are no direct elections in China the same way there are in the US, that you know, Chairman Xi isn't feeling the same pressure. I can absolutely assure you that he is, uh, particularly when you've got Chinese pork prices uh, up nearly 50% year on year, with pork being such a core part of the Chinese diet and psychologically so important that, you know, China too absolutely needs to make sure that the economy continues to tick along nicely and that, you know, households feel confident about the future because if not, it's, you know, just as uncomfortable an experience for them as it would be for Trump, albeit in a different way. So are you suggesting there would be increasing pressure on Xi Jinping as well? Well, I think there is. I mean, I'm not talking about him personally. I'm talking about the fact that China is already in a deep rut economically, and it's a rut of their own making, because fundamentally, the same economic model that the US government is railing against, which is build it and they will come, produce it and somebody will buy it, and don't worry about profits, and you know, if you drive all the opposition globally out of business, so be it. That economic model doesn't work, full stop. And you are seeing the delayed effects of that now in a Chinese economy that is saturated with debt, simply doesn't know which way to turn. You're seeing lower and lower productivity growth, uh, more and more headwinds against it, and frankly, it doesn't know which way to turn. And at the same time, the trade war, yes, makes everything worse 
as a margin, particularly because, as we said last time when we spoke, China can't earn any U.S. dollars if there is a major tra uh, trade war. And if it can't earn U.S. dollars, it can't service its dollar debt, and it can't import anything from anybody else. So then it has, it has all the problems it has now to an exponential level. And so, yeah, China absolutely is under real pressure too. And, of course, their exports unexpectedly contracted in August, didn't they? Uh, well, unexpectedly, I mean, we're talking about, you know, marginal differences between what the consensus forecast is and what the actual number is. No one's expecting it can, uh, exports to continue to do well against this backdrop um, because, you know, the U.S. is going to buy less, obviously, at some point. At the moment, in fact, sales are being buoyed artificially by people front-running tariffs, which are about to kick in soon. Uh, but other countries are also seeing their economies slowing. You're seeing that in Europe. You're seeing that in Japan. You're seeing that right the way across the Asian complex. And as a result, everybody will be buying less from China soon. But what you're also seeing in China, which is getting very little play, because frankly, this is perhaps too complicated for some journalists to cover. I'm not in any way pointing any fingers at you, sir, but just in general. And it's very uncomfortable for people to recognize is that while China's exports are unexpectedly weak, China's imports are vastly weaker. So while it's exporting less, it's importing even less than that. And you have to ask yourself, is this all trade war related? Uh, and the answer is no. When you look at the broad range of countries which are selling less to China now than they were a year ago, uh, Australia is a happy exception in the other direction. But most people are selling less. And if that's the case, is China having a trade war with the whole world and hasn't told us? Or is the Chinese economy much weaker than they're declaring? Or is it both? And the answer, I believe, is both. Uh, on one hand, China is much weaker than they let on officially. And secondly, China uh, anecdotal evidence appears to suggest is doing all it can to bring supply chains back into China and therefore have to import as little as possible, except for raw materials and food, which Australia exports to it, from everybody else. And in a nutshell, that's exactly what Donald Trump is trying to achieve in America and which everybody continually attacks him for. And China does it and nobody even notices. Indeed, indeed. And the fact that its con imports have contracted would suggest that uh, Chinese consumers are spending less as well because of the state of the economy there. Well, I mean, we don't get very accurate data on that, sadly. We get some, some retail data and you know, the quality of it is questionable. But what we do see is, for example, car sales are sharply negative year on year. They're pretty much a benchmark indicator. Mobile phone sales are sharply negative year on year. And, you know, other things are mixed. But if you've got mobile phones down and if you've got cars down, you don't really have a particularly happy consumer. And one other little kind of uh, you know, bullet point to try and link this all together is if you look at tourist arrivals in Southeast Asia, which is what your cheapest chips holiday if you're, if you're Chinese, you know, your first foreign venture, whether it's to Thailand or Bali or, or Singapore or Vietnam, those are all down too. You know, growth rates are sharply, sharply down from where they were before. So right away across the board, it would appear that the Chinese consumer perhaps isn't doing as well as all the happy, crappy propaganda that we get saying that there's straight line exponential growth and that the middle class will continue to just grow and grow and grow and grow and there'll never be any speed bumps whatsoever. So, you know, if you want to believe that, that's fine. But there's a lot of data points suggesting that just ain't so. Which uh, means we have some way to go in this dispute between the US and China and the world will be watching very closely. Well, I think the world will be watching very closely. The world is obviously tied up in it one way or another. Um, when you say a long way, I think that this struggle is, this isn't a, you know, a story of whether it will be finished by the end of this month or the end of this year. This, I think, is the state of play going forward for the rest of our careers, maybe the rest of our lives, that the US and China will be at loggerheads in one form or another. 
with the struggle shifting from one dimension to another uh, and having, you know, waxing and waning cycles. But the overall trend is clearly towards deterioration. And I don't see anything politically changing that at the moment. As you said before, it's a, it's a case of a long, uh, of a cold war between the US and China. Well, I like to categorise it as that. I'm not the only one doing so. Some people are saying it's a potential Cold War. Uh, um, you know, some people are saying it openly. But if you look at the dimensionality of this, where, as I said, it isn't about the price of vinyl flooring. Um, you know, it's affecting things like national security very, very directly. Uh, and you see, obviously, in the Asia-Pacific, or if you will, Indo-Pacific region, you know, significant political shifts and realignments taking place around issues of national security. This is not to reiterate again a trade dispute and it's very tempting to try and separate it out and say it is because that means it's easy to solve if you think of it just in purely economic terms but if you recognize it's actually geopolitical then the economics is going to go out the window but that's a deeply deeply uncomfortable thing for many people to accept because it means yeah a economists have no input on this anymore uh, and b it's not going to be very positive for either business people or for financial markets well michael It's very, very informative, and thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. So what's happening in the news? Well, the global economy can ill afford higher oil prices at a time of economic slowdown, but Brent crude surged the most on record after a drone strike on a Saudi Arabian oil facility removed about 5% of global supplies. The benchmark oil futures jumped as much as $1.73 a barrel to $71.95, as the market opened Monday in Asia, the biggest jump in dollar terms since futures started trading in 1988. State energy producer Saudi Aramco lost about 5.7 million barrels per day of output on Saturday after 10 unmanned aerial vehicles struck the world's biggest crude processing facility and the, and the kingdom's second biggest oil field. For oil markets, it's the single worst sudden disruption ever surpassing the loss of Kuwaiti and Iraqi petroleum supply in August 1990, when Saddam Hussein invaded his neighbour. It also exceeds the loss of Iranian oil output in 1979 during the Islamic Revolution, according to data from the US Energy Department. The attack means several things for the economy and markets. Oil prices will rise, the dollar will weaken, European markets will take a huge hit compared to the US, and the Fed is more likely to implement rate cuts. And house prices fell in all but two of the nation's capital cities over the three months to the end of June. Amid confirmation, consumer confidence has yet to be buoyed by tax cuts or falls in official interest rates. The Australian Bureau of Statistics on Tuesday reported residential property prices fell 0.7% nationally in the June quarter to be 7.4% down over the past 12 months. Prices in Melbourne and Sydney dropped 0.8% and 0.85% respectively for the quarter, to be 9.3% and 9.6% lower since June 2018. On the plus side, consumer spending intentions are back in positive territory for the first time since early 2019, and they're back faster than expected due to tax cuts, according to the Commonwealth Bank's latest analysis of 2.5 million households. CBA Household Spending Intention Series generated from the bank's customer data shows that a lift in spending intentions is underway in retail, travel, entertainment and home buying. The CBA data is a strong leading indicator as it draws upon near real-time spending readings from CBA's household debits and credit transactions data. 
In contrast with that of sentiment surveys, such as the Westpac Melbourne Institute Consumer Sentiment Index, which indicated this month that half of tax cut recipients would be spend less than half of their payments. And the Morrison government is proposing unprecedented peacetime laws to boss around the heads of big business. At the same time, it is sticking to a boast it is the champion of getting big government out of the way of business through its plans to cut regulations and red tape. This is the unusual political context and the tricky juggling act for the government when it produces a big stick legislation it insists is necessary to force power companies to do the right thing by electricity consumers. It would not just be a matter of directing CEOs how to run their business, it could also force them to sell off assets. The broad objective would be to prevent power companies from engaging in anti-competitive behaviour that would deny consumers cheaper rates. There are precedents in the US, the government says, but not here. And it should be noted, there are no suggestions the affected companies have broken any laws. But the very forces that once demanded privatisation of the electricity industry are now associated with the politics of insisting government again has a say in running it. And the fracturing of Australia's relationship with China and the prolonged US-China trade war was impacting on the number of Chinese tourists visiting the country, Australia's new tourism boss has warned. In a first major interview, Tourism Australia Managing Director Philippa Harrison said the organisation was trying to steer clear of international spat between Australia's traditional ally, the US, and the significant trade partner of China. But it was having an impact on the flow of tourists coming from China, which is Australia's number one tourism market. The focus on China's expanding authority in Southeast Asia, as well as the fallout over the scandal engulfing Chinese-Australian Liberal MP Gladys Liu, including the questioning of her loyalty to her adopted country, has also risked damaging the flow of tourists from the lucrative Chinese market. More than 1.4 million Chinese tourists visited Australia in the year to July, but the increase has slowed from double-digit growth to a flatlining 0.3% in 2018-19, partly due to the slowing Chinese domestic economy. And a US-China trade deal poses longer-term downside risk to Australian economy, including farmers and gas exporters, so we shouldn't get too comfortable if Donald Trump ends the conflict with China, according to Reserve Bank of Australia correspondents. As Prime Minister flew this week to Washington to ask President Trump to resolve the trade war, the RBA released internal documents paradoxically showing Australia could lose from a US-China trade deal. The US-China trade war's impact on the Australian economy is likely to be small, shaving about 0.20 of a percentage point of economic growth in 2019-20, the RBA's internal July World Forecast meeting document said. Australia may even benefit in the short term from the trade war, resulting in Chinese authorities resorting to stimulus and demanding more natural resources such as iron ore, coal and liquefied natural gas, according to the RBA. The correspondence was released in response to a Freedom of Information request. And big energy retailers, AGL, NG Australia and Origin Energy, have increased default market offers for their customers, despite new laws introduced by the Morrison government aimed at driving down prices. The Australian Competition Consumer Commission's latest report into the national electricity market said its initial analysis had found the government's price safety net had resulted in savings for those on standing offers of between $130 and $190 per household since it was introduced in July. But the price savings had come from customers shopping around for the best deal for smaller retailers, not the big three retailers. The ACCC said it would now look at the pricing strategies of AGL, Energy Australia and Origin Energy. And Tasmanian-based infant formula company Bellamy's 
has recommended shareholders vote in favour of a proposed $1.5 billion takeover by Chinese company Mengnu. The potential takeover offers a significant 59% premium to the last closing price for Bellamy's shares. Shares close on September 13th at $8.32, and the offer for Mengnu is $12.65 per share and a $60 dividend per share. The board of Bellamy's has unanimously recommended that shareholders vote in favour of the offer, but it is facing regulatory and political scrutiny in Canberra, setting up another crucial Chinese foreign investment test for Treasurer Josh Frydenberg. And beer giant Carlton United Breweries has expanded into the wine sector for the first time since it was split off from former parent Foster's Group in 2011. CUB, which is about to undergo an ownership change itself after a $16 buyout proposal from Japanese group Asahi, which still requires approval from Australian Competition Consumer Commission, has required wine-in-a-can company Riot Wine Company. Riot Wine Company sells wine in cans and kegs and has been growing fast since it was established in 2016. CUB, which owns Victoria Bitter, Carlton Draft and Great Northern, said it planned to invest further into the Riot business, with a first step being an upgrade of the group's cellar door in, in the inner western Adelaide suburb of Brompton. And the Volkswagen Group and Audi have settled two major Australian class actions related to the global diesel emissions scandal. While the details of the settlement are confidential and still to be rubber-stamped by the federal court, the payout will be between 87 and $127.1 million, or about $1,400 per car. The class actions allege that the affected vehicles were fitted with illegal defeat devices that were designed to cheat emissions tests and seek to recover compensation for affected motorists. Around 100,000 Volkswagen, Audi and Skoda vehicles in Australia were affected by the issue. The class actions were brought by Bannister Law and Morris Blackburn in November 2015, following multi-billion dollar payouts over the issue in the United States and Canada. And the performance of Manus Island refugee contractor Paladin is three times worse than previously estimated, according to new documents, which show the company was fined more than 3,700 times in a 12-month period for failing to meet minimum service standards. The documents released to the Senate provide further evidence Paladin did not have the experience or expertise to run a $532 million government contract. They show the company repeatedly failed to deliver basic services, submit reports and provide adequate training. When asked about the company's performance in Senate question time last week, the responsible minister in the upper house, Michaela Cash, described the breaches as relatively minor administrative failures. The unredacted documents released to the Senate show the breaches were far more serious, including maintenance not performed, poor workplace health and safety, lax perimeter security and regular failures to adequately police those entering and leaving the refugee centres on Manus Island in Papua New Guinea. These failures cost Paladin $3.1 million in fines between May 2018 and April 2019, while the company is facing a further $8.1 million in fines for July last year. In that month, Paladin logged 2,207 performance failures, including 649 breaches for staff not having the mandatory training and qualifications, 928 instances of transport services not running on time, and 592 breaches of entry and exit protocols. And Bendigo, an Adelaide bank, has cast doubt on the country's ability to notch a 10th consecutive year of growth in agriculture exports, as drought takes a heavy toll on cattle and sheep numbers. The warning came as federal government forecaster 
ABES projected a 5% drop in the value of farm production to $59 billion in 2019-20. ABES said the country should brace for sharp falls in livestock, livestock products and summer crop production. It said lower production would reduce export earnings and that farmers also face strong competition in key export markets. A report from Bendigo-owned Rural Bank released on Monday showed the country slipped backwards in terms of net agriculture trade in 2018-19, despite achieving a record $50.7 billion in exports. And Sydney's drinking water catchment is under threat from longwall mining operations, with research confirming upland swamps and streams are drying out. Research indicates longwall mining has been drying up New South Wales swamps that provide drinking water. A study conducted by the University of New South Wales has revealed that the impact of mining operations south of Sydney are becoming more widespread. Mining company South32 wants to extend the life of its dendrobium colliery south of Sydney, where it extracts 5.2 million tonnes of coking coal each year for steelmaking. The swamps provide vital drinking water to Sydney and the Illawarra and the impacts on the systems are being exacerbated by the drought. And a new report shows that 2018 was a good year to be the boss of a big company. The median take-home pay of ASX 100 CEOs was $4.5 million, and only one eligible CEO didn't receive a bonus, Domino's boss Dom Mage, according to the Australian Council of Superannuation Investors. But Mr Mage's realised pay, which includes cash and the actual value of equity that vested during the year, falling to $7.06 million, was largely due to the company's share price declining. And Qantas chief Alan Joyce topped the list with a realised pay of $23.9 million. Now, given the average Australian full-time wage is only $86,736, some are calling for the introduction of a UK model in which CEO pay is measured against that of workers. And Adelaide-based Amita Gupta claims to have been severely underpaid by food delivery giant Uber Eats. Ms Gupta said she worked as long as 96 hours in some weeks, most of it spent waiting for orders to be placed via the Uber Eats app, but earned as little as $300 for those periods. Taking the matter before the Fair Work Commission, Ms Gupta relied on a Hindi interpreter and was represented by her husband, Santosh, who is also an Uber Eats delivery driver. But Ms Gupta lost a case against Uber on August 23rd and was given three weeks to lodge an appeal with the FWC's full bench. This is an important test case and it could result in consumers paying a higher price for ordering food via a mobile app. If Uber loses the appeal, it would be forced to pay its delivery drivers higher wages. There could be significant consequences for the wider gig economy, particularly for companies like Deliveroo, which is also being sued for alleged worker exploitation and uses a similar business model. And that's it for this week. And next week, I'll be talking to Troy Douglas, who is global CEO and co-founder of Nexpa, Australia's leading naturally sugar-free beverage provider who've just cracked the UK market. And I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering about Australia's latest unemployment figures. And of course, I'll be bringing you all the week's news. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter, TalkingBizBZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. If you want, leave a comment. Have a great week. Take care. Be good. And looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. 
imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.